0: There you go. All right. Now we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, our Advent series, Advent 2022. We've been looking at the beginning chapters of Luke. Luke is famous among the different gospels for showing, not telling. He's really good at just showing the story. The, The most literary of the authors in the sense of he's not explicitly making all the connections for you. He's going to show you via the the characters and the way the narrative unfolds. And so we see this really beautiful in these first few chapters as we've marched through the Advent themes of hope and love and joy and now peace. I want to thank Terrell for knocking it out of the park last week. Yeah, he did a great job preaching on joy, um, just did a fantastic job. And one of the things he said, and I actually got to hear both sermons, he said it twice because he's like me. Sometimes he says different things in the different services. If you didn't know that, we do that. Um, And so he said this one thing in both services, and that was that there's this like tension in the air that we're living with right now, a kind of anxiety across culture globally in America. And he expressed it this way. He's like, it just kind of feels like the world's going to end any day, you know? And like every morning you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, the world didn't end. Wow, that's weird. You know, like you're surprised by it because there's just this, this tension in the air that we deal with day after day after day. I would, I would define that as a lack of peace, both emotionally and physically. We're, we're worried about not being able to afford our groceries anymore, right? That's a lack of peace. We're worried about wars all over the world. That's a lack of peace. Of peace. And then that translates into an anxiety, depression, a heaviness. Anxiety rates are skyrocketing in our culture. Uh, Jonathan mentioned this earlier as he was leading us in prayer. And so there's this heaviness we feel. And just to to kind of define peace for you as we think about this with Luke chapter 2 and the birth of Jesus, the angels declare that peace has come to earth. And, and what that's implying is something we know to be true, but the Bible doesn't say it explicitly in this text, and that is that the norm for the earth is no peace. Like, that's the, that's the earth we live in. It's not a place of peace. It's a place of chaos. And so the promise of Jesus in his first advent is that he's actually going to bring us peace. Peace and the problem that we deal with is we don't experience that peace. So, defining it biblically there there are two definitions. There's kind of a strict definition for peace and then a, a bigger definition. The strict definition is the ceasing of hostilities, the end of war. No more violence. That's the narrow, concrete definition of peace. And then <coughs> excuse me. And then the broader definition of peace is the Hebrew word shalom. That's everything being the way it should be. We are longing for that, right? And we experience little tastes of it in a good meal, in a really sweet time with a friend or a loved one where you just connect and everything's right. The beautiful sunset, perfect weather, enjoying time by a fire, right? Like we get those moments of peace, but shalom, the promise of peace in a global sense is, something we look forward to only in the the new heavens and the new earth, right? When Jesus wraps up everything he started. And so we talked about this last week and the week before. Advent means the arrival of an important person or event. And so at Christmas time, we're celebrating the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus. And then we look forward to the second advent. He's coming back. He started peace. He's brought peace to earth We can know that peace personally through a relationship with him, and then there's coming a day where it will be complete shalom, where it will all be made right. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Everything is, ah, the way it should be. And so we see this repeated in a theme through our story in Luke chapter 2. The birth narrative repeats something three times. I said before that Luke is known for showing and not telling. Matthew will be like, and here's how he fulfilled this, and here's how he fulfilled that. And Matthew will make it more explicit in his gospel. Luke just tells the story. And you're like, ah, I see what you did there. Ah, I see how you fulfilled that prophecy, right? But here, he's telling. He's being explicit. So this is unusual for Luke. Luke's just been letting the story unfold. And here, he's going to say something three times to make sure you don't miss it. And here's what he's going to tell us, that this peace that comes to earth, that the angels announce... He says three times it comes from a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. To be technical, he says swaddling clothes twice and manger three times. So a baby lying in a feeding trough. Peace has come to earth. How has it come to earth? A baby lying in a manger. A baby lying in a manger. A baby lying in a manger. So we're going to read the story. I want to pick up at verse 8. So he's just been born. And now we're going to get told what's happening out in the region. Chapter 2, verse 8. We'll go back and read the other verses as we move through the sermon this morning. But starting in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth. That's the promise. And how do we get this peace on earth? It's a baby lying in a manger, comforted, held tightly, wrapped in swaddling cloths for us. Let me pray and ask that his spirit would meet us here, because we don't always feel the peace. We need something supernatural to happen, so I'm going to ask God to meet us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would meet with us, that as we look at your word, that this would be more than just us reading a story, but that your spirit would open our eyes. We ask you, please fill us, help us, be with us, show us your peace, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Peace on earth, how, how does he do it? A baby in a manger, a baby in a manger. And as we see this unfold, we'll see three circumstances by which the peace is entering into this world as, as Luke tells the story, as he unfolds the story for us. We're to observe and, and make uh, kind of interpretations as we see the story unfolding. And so, number one, we see that peace comes in the coincidences. Peace comes in the coincidences. Number two, we'll see that peace comes in the great fear. Peace in the great fear. And then number three, peace in the attending to. Peace in the attending to. Yes, awkward phrase. We'll get to that at the end. So, number one, peace in the coincidences. We see this in verses one through seven. Peace comes in the coincidences. The word coincidence, if you break it down, means two things coinciding, going together. Two things at the same time, same place. That's what the word means. Now, in our culture, we tend to think of it as random, chance, accident. Why is that? Because our culture has drifted from a view that God is sovereign and in control of all things to now an overall worldview that life is all by chance and everything's random and an accident. We're just slime that's evolved, right? Like that's kind of where we are now as a culture. But historically, if you went back 100 years, 200 years, and you talked about a coincidence with people that have been in a culture that's been impacted by a Christian worldview, people would say, yeah, coincidence, that's, that's God's hand at work. <laughs> we don't really believe that anymore. But here the story is showing us God's hand at work in the coincidences. Peace coming into our world. Peace from the heavens down to the earth in the coincidences, in the things that seem random. Yet we can trust God is sovereign. So chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is big, epic language. Let me rephrase it. In this time, a law went out from the ruler of the world, the great Caesar, the leader of the peace of Rome. This great pagan emperor who through an iron fist brought peace. He promised that he would bring peace on earth, and he did it by defeating all his enemies. And so that's a kind of peace, but a very bloody, violent peace. That's the kind of peace that Caesar Augustus brought. And he saw himself as a god. He was worshipped as a god. And he declared that all the world should be registered. There should be a census. So this pagan emperor, who most of the people that loved God at the time would have thought, man, he's against God. He's not on God's side. The universe is out of control. God's not here because Caesar's leading things. He tells us what to do. We don't like this, but now we have to go registered. He tells people to go register for the census. Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And now the characters we care about come into the story. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be... be to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now probably if, if you've grown up in uh, this part of the world, you've heard a few Christmas stories before. Even if you haven't grown up in church, And something that people like to talk about a lot is is how hard this would have been on Mary. She was pregnant. This was a great inconvenience. This coincidence of them having to travel, of them having to hit the road, either hiking or riding on a donkey, right? Like that's how people traveled in these days. That was not a fun coincidence for Mary. That was not a fun coincidence for Joseph. And yet we trust now as we step back God was in control of this. God is sovereign over these difficulties, these annoyances, these pains that they went through. So they're hiking cross-country. They're traveling through the hill country because they have to go from their little hick town out in the sticks. I like to point out Nazareth actually means stick, right? So it was really out in the sticks, and so they were coming from this little hick town, traveling up to the bigger city, right? Bethlehem was basically a, a nice suburb of Jerusalem to where David was from. There were probably even in 1 AD, some tourist attractions like, hey, David slept here and that kind of thing, right? This is the king's town, suburb of Jerusalem. They're traveling up into the mountain, up into the plateau region of Mount Zion of Jerusalem. They're there in Bethlehem, the suburb of Jerusalem. And they have to do all this traveling because this dumb pagan emperor is bossing them around and telling them what to do. And so this pagan emperor who thinks he's in control of the world, we're seeing now, oh, God's using him to fulfill ancient prophecy because the Savior is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. We see this in, is it Micah or Malachi? I got to check my notes here. It's in Micah 5.2. It says, you, O Bethlehem, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The ruler whose origins are from of old. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am from ancient times. Or you could use the language of Daniel. He is the son of man that is from the ancient of days. We see this ancient ruler who is yet very modern, being born in the moment, in Bethlehem. He's come, he's born in Bethlehem, and we see here this collision of a pagan emperor's will, decree, and a sovereign God's rule and leadership and grace. It's really important for us to recognize that peace comes in the coincidences of life. This is so hard for us because, again, we've been taught taught that coincidence means chance, randomness, Uh, evolution, who knows what's happening. It's just, you know, things are just falling apart. And yet we see in the scripture that God is actually sovereign over these coincidences. And I just want to remind you and remind my own heart that a God who is actually sovereign over every detail of life is horrifying if he's not gracious. And so that thing that wells up in you, that wells up in me as well, that's like, Wait, a God that's sovereign over every detail of life, over the coincidences, over the good and the bad? I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I have some philosophical concerns about that, right? You do, I do as well. But the Bible also tells us that he's gracious. He loves us so much that he came and he suffered with us and for us. He came and was born as a baby in a manger. And so when we look at the baby in the manger and when we look at the death on the cross, we say, I can, I can trust this God, this is the kind of sovereign God that I can entrust myself to, a God that is sovereign over the coincidences of life. One of my favorite pictures that kind of describes this level of sovereignty, how the God of the Bible is the God of coincidences and random chance, is from 1 Kings 22. It's a little forgotten Bible story in the Old Testament. And in 1 Kings chapter 22, we see the coming together of, again, ancient prophecy, and uh, pagan rulers that don't trust God. And we see that collision and recognize, no, God is in control. In First Corinthians, uh, sorry, First Kings 22, there's a prophet named Micaiah. Verse 17, he predicts that Ahab is going to die. So he's speaking the word of the Lord as a prophet. He says, I saw Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. So what is he saying? He's saying it in kind of poetic language. The king is going to be killed. The shepherd, the leader, is going to be struck down. So in verse 30, then Ahab, the evil king, says to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes, right? I don't know why the other king even went for that, right? Like, you look like a king. I'll hide, and then you'll be a bigger target, right? But for some reason, he agreed to it. So Ahab is in disguise, and Jehoshaphat, the other king, is wearing his royal robes. And in verse 34, we're told in 1 Kings 22:34, 34 a certain man drew his bow at random. This is a coincidence, y'all. Just random chance, right? A certain man just draws his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. The arrow hit its target. It was random. It was a coincidence, And yet it's a fulfillment of the prophecy that Micaiah had declared. I grabbed a picture of an arrow hitting a target. Um, I've tried to shoot bow and arrow before. I don't think I've ever hit the bullseye before. Um, That's hard to do. Some of you might be really good with it. But what this story is telling us is that what God decrees, what God determines will come to pass. We can trust him with the coincidences. Sometimes in life, I make my plans, and I'm moving in a direction, and I'm like, wait, that all fell apart, and I have to turn to change directions, and I can get really frustrated because I really want to be in control of my plans, right? I don't know about y'all, but I kind of want to be sovereign over my life. I want it to go the way I've sketched it out in, in my notebook, right? And I have to continually give that sovereignty back to God and say, God, I trust you to guide my arrows exactly where they need to go. I trust you to send me, Lord, exactly where I need to be sent. And that's part of the Christian life is just continuing to give those coincidences back to God. Think of Mary and Joseph. They're like, this is great to have a miracle baby and all, but couldn't we just stay at home? Like some of you have had children. You probably wouldn't want to be hiking, right? You probably wouldn't want to go deliver in some strange place in a dirty feeding trough. And yet they had to trust, okay, God, God's got this. He knows, he knows what he's doing, even when he does things that we don't necessarily like. As we wrestle with this, I've found Acts chapter 2 to be really helpful. Peter talks about how God is sovereign over even the most evil thing that's ever happened in world history. Peter says this about Jesus. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so what Peter is telling us, and what I think the rest of Scripture is telling us, is that God really is sovereign. He really is in charge of everything. And again, humans have always wrestled with that. We struggle with that. We don't understand all the details. We are assured that God does not cause evil. In the sense that James says, hey, when you're tempted to evil, don't say God maybe do that. That's, that's on you, man. Right? Like, evil comes from Satan. Evil comes from humans. And so that, that's a struggle to sort that out, right? Like, so somehow God is sovereign over all these things, and he somehow determined, and he set, and with his foreknowledge, the most evil thing that ever happened, he's like, yeah, that's a part of my plan. And the best way I can make sense of that is, yeah, evil is, is on us. And yet God can, can control and channel these things and lead these things for his greater purposes. He's still sovereign over all these things. Christians for 2,000 years haven't really figured out a good way to explain that. What I come back to is God's in charge, and the only reason I trust him is because of the gospel. It's because the baby in the manger. It's because the God who is for us, who, who lived the perfect life that I couldn't live, died a sacrificial death that I deserved to die, And rose from the dead, proving that he is sovereign, that he is in charge. So I just keep giving the reins back to him. I just keep saying, okay, you're you're king, Lord. I trust you. And so we entrust ourselves to him. I think it's really important to pray for faith in these stresses and coincidences, right? When you're pregnant and God sends you on a hike, you pray, Lord, help me to see that you're in this, because I'm not feeling it, Lord. Pray for faith. We can be honest about these situations and Jesus's model prayer is so helpful in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, the hardest thing anyone's ever had to do, right? Jesus prays, "If there's any other way, Father, take this cup of suffering from me." Yet not what I want, what you want, God. And so we have this amazing freedom to to take our our tears and our struggles and the things that feel like random coincidences and, and pains and suffering, we, we can take all those to him. Lord, help me with Will you take this? Will you lift my burden? We can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. And yet still trust him like, okay, Lord, maybe, maybe you want me to endure this suffering. I don't, I don't know if I can, but if you want me to, I will. And so we are free to wrestle with him in prayer. We, we bring those concerns to God. God, help me. And then we say, but I trust that you're sovereign. I, I trust that you're good. And so we, we wrestle through those faith issues in prayer with God in our prayer closet. And then as we've prayed through that, then that, that gives us the spiritual strength to, to then stand up and speak up and be like, I'm, I'm God's coincidence. I'm God's arrow and he's gonna send me where he wants to send me. I thought this was the plan, but he took me over here <laughs> and I'm gonna trust that God is with me. So I'm gonna stand up in that and say, all right, God, I've prayed, I've wrestled in prayer. I'm trusting you, and I'm going to speak up to his goodness. Say, yeah, I trust him. First Peter 3.15, it's like, be ready to have a reason, because as you're suffering, people are going to be like, now what? Now why do you hope in Jesus? Be ready to have that reason. Ultimately, the reason is Jesus, because he suffered for me, so I can trust him. He hasn't put anything on me that, that he hasn't carried himself. He's carried much more. He's carried everything. So pray for faith in the coincidences, in the struggles, and then, and then move forward. You're an arrow. Second point is peace in the great fear. Peace in the great fear. We see this in verses 8 through 14. Verses 8 through 14, this is a famous part of the story where he's announcing this to the shepherds. Uh, And Just by background a little bit, uh, shepherds were tough guys, outdoorsmen, uh, and this confuses us a little bit. So kind of two things that seem to be in contradiction. Shepherds were rough characters that were disrespected in culture, right? They were kind of seen as low lives, as dishonest. Um, I think it's helpful to think about it almost like pirates, right? Like pirates, that's a great name for a sports team. Pirates are cool. We like to watch movies about pirates. I wouldn't necessarily want to have a pirate over for dinner, Right? Like a real pirate, I'd be a little worried about. And and shepherds were kind of like that, like rough, unsavory characters that were tough guys. They could watch out for themselves. They weren't really afraid of much. And so throughout the Bible, shepherds are on the one hand held up as models. God shepherds his people. He protects his people. We have Abraham. We have David. We have these characters in the Bible that were shepherds that took care of sheep. Uh, This was a good thing. They lived outdoors and they were tough. And so you didn't necessarily want them coming in because they would stink. And yet... On the other hand, they were a role model. So this is kind of positive and negative of shepherds in the Bible. But what I want you to see is that they were tough and not scared of much. So let's see how the story unfolds. Verse eight: In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. They were filled with great fear. These are tough guys. These are, these are cowboys that have been through a lot, and they are terrified. They want to cry. They're horrified. They're filled with great fear because they've seen these angels appearing in the sky. And this is not normal, y'all. We hear, this, we hear the Christmas story so much, we think it's normal. The Christmas story is not normal. I really like to remind people of this. Historically, when you read the Bible, it covers thousands of years. And there are three little blips little 30, 50, 40-year periods where miracles and crazy things happen. Only, only three of those in the Bible. There's some like, little separate incidences here and there. But basically, where it's like lots of crazy stuff happening on a daily basis, right? Just three times in history, it's, it's Moses and Joshua. A lot of crazy stuff happened there. They were learning that they could trust him, and he wrote most of the Old Testament. And then there's the Elijah and Elisha stories. Time in history where Israel was at its all all out low, right? It was just like things were horrible, apocalyptic, just evil, terrible, right? And God shows up in some miraculous ways through Elijah and Elisha. And then later, when's the last time we saw this? Jesus and his followers. Some crazy things were happening. So I say all that say by background, these guys were guys like us, except tougher than you and me. But But they were like us. They didn't expect miracles, right? They didn't expect supernatural stuff to happen. They lived in the same kind of world that we live in. The Bible is full of characters that live in the same world we live in, that do not expect God to show up, that don't expect angels, that don't expect scary stuff. And yet God breaks in, and they're terrified. And yet they're saying, we're bringing peace in the great fear. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to him, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Angels often have to say, fear not. We we joke about this a lot. I like to talk about this at Christmas. Angels were not little baby cherubs. They were not pretty ladies in choir robes. They were scary monsters, okay? They were generally scary monsters that represent the terrifying holiness of God. And they have to say, no, 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 it's okay. I, I didn't come here to kill you today. I've come to bring grace. Good news. Gospel. Good news. What is it? The Savior's coming. The Savior's coming. They go on, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David. It's been promised in the ancient text, the prophecies to David himself. You're going to have a a son that's not going to be as bad as all the other sons, but this son will be perfect. He'll love God perfectly. And this king will be a perfect king. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The great warrior you've all been waiting for, he'll be perfect. He'll defeat all the enemies. How is he going to come? He's going to come as a vulnerable baby, comforted. He's going to be given peace by his mother and then placed in a really dirty feeding trough. (laughs) Like there's so much humility here. I mean, just the humility of being a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, right? Like wrapped up tight to help with the insecurities of being a baby in the scary world. But then the extra humility of being laid in a feeding trough. This is a humble king. And this will be a theme throughout the book of Luke. We'll be looking at Luke a lot more in the new year. Um, There's just this theme again and again that Jesus turns upside down our values. He flips things around on us. He's a humble king. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace comes to those who, with whom He is pleased, on whom his favor rests, some of the translations say. Peace among men. So we've got this picture here and even the way the Greek is arranged, uh, it's kind of a chiasm where you've got kind of a picture you're being shown of glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. It's a contrast. A lot of stories set up this contrast. We have this picture of God being holy and in the heavens and we're lowly and mortal and sinful and we're down here on earth. So in the Tower of Babel, you've got some humans that are like, well, we'll solve that. We'll just pull ourselves up by our bootsteps and we'll climb our way into heaven. God says, no, that's not, that's not going to work. And so the message of the gospel is that God comes down The message is never that we go up. And so what we are to see in the story is in our great fear, we have to, with honesty, recognize the gap, the chasm between us and God and say, I need a God who can bridge that gap. See, there are two ways that we try to bridge the gap as human beings. We either ignore it or we try to climb up that gap on our own. Ignoring it is, is the way of kind of the young and the hip and the comfort-driven, some Eastern religions that say, you know what, sin's an illusion, suffering's an illusion, just enjoy yourself, have fun, don't worry about that gap. That fear you feel, that's not real. Deny that fear and you'll feel better. That's one way of dealing with the gap between our human sin and God's holiness. Glory to God in the highest, yet peace on earth, by God's grace with those he's pleased. And we often say, no, I don't want to think about that. That's too scary. So I'm just going to act like it's not there. We lie about the great fear. We lie about the gap. It's another way that we deal with the gap, that we deal with the great fear. And we say, you know what? I'm going to be really, really good. And God will have to bless me. That's the religious way of dealing with the gap. That's the all-American way of dealing with the gap. And it may f- be fun to have coffee with people that deny the gap, but it's really nice to have the hard-working types as your neighbors, right? So these are good people. You want to be good people, but you just need to be warned you can't actually bridge the gap on your own. Like, I want to have the neighbor that's crawling out of that hole, climbing his way to heaven. He's so responsible. You know, he's, he's running the neighborhood watch. He's mowing his lawn. He's doing everything right. That's a good neighbor to have. But God just wants you to hear you can't make it. You can't get there. No amount of good works can scale your way up that gap to make it to the glory of God in the heavens. Romans 3.23 says it this way, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 3, he is explicitly calling out both sides of the equation. If you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, he he calls out hard the rebels, and he's like, hey, those of you that are even denying the category of sin, it's a thing, and your life is falling apart. He wants you to hear that. Those of you that are trying to claw your way out of the hole and just be good enough to solve the problem on your own, he's calling you out as well. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can get there. Only Jesus bridge that gap. And that's the same story being told here through the baby in the manger. Glory to God in the heavens. Glory to God in the highest. And yet on earth, peace among men. How? How is that possible? This baby being born, this savior that's come for us, Christ the Lord. Here in the incarnation, we see someone being willing to suffer with us and for us to take our sin upon his back to live through the same betrayal and hurt and abuse that you and I have lived through. God is willing to pay that price. That's why we can boldly look at God as sovereign and in control and say, yes, Lord, because you're willing to pay the price to love me, to save me, to redeem me. Because of grace, we can trust him. And so here we see peace in our great fear. We're terrified. What's going on? The angel says, fear not. God's bringing peace grace. I have a chart I like to use a lot that says here that as you see the gap growing, you'll also, if you have the eyes of faith, see the greatness of the cross filling that gap. And so this comes from uh, Paul Miller and Jack Miller. I recommend a lot of books by Paul Miller. Jack Miller's passed away many years ago. Uh, Both ministry leaders that have impacted me and written a lot of books. And so this idea here is that The flashlight is kind of you seeing with eyes of faith reality. And so as you see reality, you see a a greater reality of God's holiness, glory to God in the highest. But you also see, as you see God's holiness, a greater understanding of your sinfulness. Now, I would make a little critique here. I think my Puritan friends, I love to read the Puritans, but I think sometimes they've taken this too far. And what they say is, hey, you know, if you really want to grow, just look at your own sinfulness, whip yourself, talk about what a sinner and what a worm you are, right? So I would just caution against that. I would say the focus is on God. Focus on God. And w- when you see God, you're going to recognize that you're a sinner. <laughs> you're going to be like, man, I, I don't love people like I should. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous, right? So you're, you will have an awareness of your sin, and that'll be natural. But in the end, what you'll see is Christ covering that gap, You'll see the cross bigger and bigger because the gap gets larger and larger. In your great fear, run to Jesus. Don't run to your own ability to climb out of that hole. And don't run to the denial that that gap even exists. In your great fear, come to Jesus. Some of you need to come to Jesus for the first time. Some of you need to say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to save me. And all you have to do is ask him and he will. It is that simple. I would love to talk to you about that if you want to know more about what it means to entrust yourself by faith to Jesus. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a while and you're drifting back to clawing your way out of the hole. I do this all the time. I start to take back sovereignty from God. Like, no, God, I got this, right? Like a two-year-old. I can do it! Let me tie my shoes! And I have to be like, nope, I can't do this. I'm turning 50 soon. Nope, God, I can't do it. I, I need you. And so we continue to relinquish that Jesus is the only cure for the gap, for the great fear that we're facing. The last point is peace in the attending to. This is a strange phrase that I'm using on purpose because I want to draw your attention to what it really means here peace in the attending to. We see in verses 15 through 20. And before we read the unfolding of the story, uh, I just want to give a little background from the world of education. My wife and I are both educators and have been involved in schools and starting schools and stuff like that. Um, And there's this famous British educator from the 1800s named Charlotte Mason. Real popular, and she really influences uh, a lot of educators that are kind of trying to reclaim some of our Christian roots in education. And a couple ideas that I think are really helpful that, that she brings to us in education, just real two, two short, quick ones. Uh, one is children are humans. So that's helpful to know for those of you that weren't sure about that. Uh, children are humans. And kind of down, down chain from that is the second idea that, that we learn by attending to things that are important. This is really important for us because we're in a world more than ever where our attention is being stolen from us, right? Like all the evil tech billionaires in the world and their AI robots, I know I sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but this is all true, it's all documented, (laughs) like literally they make money by stealing our attention. They live for that. That's how they make money. That's how they get rich. And so you're going to have to decide what you're going to attend to because you cannot coast. Coasting is not an option. Your attention will be stolen. So, a couple of quotes from uh, one is from a Charlotte Mason teacher. She says, Our job as teachers and parents is to help our students cultivate a habit of attention. Remember, habits are formed by doing the desired behavior over and over. We're headed into the new year. What does this mean? Habits are not formed by coasting. Habits are formed by doing the right thing. Again and again, attending to the things that matter. Attending to. Here's a second quote. Uh, William James is discussing this whole concept of attention. Uh, He says, the quality of an experience depends on the human faculty of attention. A thing may be present to a man and a woman a hundred times But if that person persistently fails to notice it, it cannot be said to enter into their experience. So what does that mean? Um, The heavens declare the glory of God. Are you going to attend to that? Like when the sunset's gorgeous, are you going to say, God, you're good? Are you going to have your head down on your phone? Like, what are you going to do? You have to choose to attend to those things that God is presenting to you again and again. God's like, I'm here, I'm here. Here I am. And we have to make a choice to attend to him. Now let's read the story, because I think this all comes from the story, not just education, right? So, verse 15: When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Attending to number one: God's told us some stuff. We're going to disrupt our lives and go pay attention to what God said. Will you be that kind of person? Will I be that kind of person? I'm reading his word, and he tells me crazy things, like how I should follow him, trust him, obey his rules. Am I going to attend to that? Am I going to change direction? say, hey, I, should, I could, should go look into this, right? I should attend to this. I should leave here and go there. That's the first attending to. Verse 16, and they went with haste. They hurried. They found Mary and Joseph, and the baby, where? What? Lying in a manger. Yes. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So we see them disrupting their lives, picking up, going somewhere else based on what God has told them, and then telling other people about it. And what happens? It starts to spread like wildfire. The other people hearing their crazy behavior of paying attention to God's word, other people are wondering at this, like, what? you paid attention to God, right? I don't think that was all it. I mean, some of it's just the story itself. But there's this wonder that spreads. As we hear, pay attention to, pass on what God has told us. God speaks through his word. We like to say it again and again, that we believe the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. Are you gonna listen to him, attend to what he says, do what he says, tell other people about it and see that attending to spread. Verse 19 uh, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I love that verse. She very proactive attending to here, right? We would maybe even call this meditation. Mary was really focused. She, she treasured these things in her heart. It's a whole nother kind of attending to. Are you going to treasure up what God has done? What God has said? We're going to enjoy it, celebrate it, hold on to it. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned. Returned where? They went back to their normal life. Um, There's this great story where the transfiguration takes place where Jesus basically kind of appears in glory. It's a scary, miraculous vision. He's like bright and shining. Uh, I think Peter, James, and John are there. He's talking to Elijah and Moses. It's a totally, totally wacky experience. It just blows them away. And Peter's like, Uh, Jesus, should we build tents and just live here forever, right? They're having a mountaintop experience. And in one of the Gospels, it calls him out, and he's like, because he didn't know what he was saying. (laughs) So it's kind of like, this is a side phrase, right? But that's often what we do. We have this experience of God, and we're like, oh, God was there, right? Like, maybe you've been to a Christian camp or been in a worship service or maybe just, you know, reading this Christian book, or you're just reading the Scriptures at home alone in your prayer closet, and you're just like, I just want to stay here. I just want to build a tent and live here forever. I don't want to go anywhere else now. And yet Jesus says, no, go back to your home and tell other people about it. And here we see that, again, lived out, this pattern, the shepherds return. They went back to the normal life, but they were changed. They went back into their normal, mundane, boring life, but they were changed, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. They're attending to So we see them picking up and going to see it. We see them running with haste. We see them telling others about what they've been told. We see the others wondering at what had been told to someone else. It's just spreading. We see Mary treasuring these things in her heart. We see them now going back to their normal life, but glorifying God and praising God. We just see this whole chain of events of attending to what God has said and what God has done. I think two helpful words we use to summarize these things, kind of biblical practices are meditation and worship. Worship. Meditation and worship. There's a type of meditation in our culture which is like empty your mind, free yourself, right? Kind of goes back to that deny there's any suffering, deny there's any sin, you're one with the universe. That's not what biblical meditation is. Biblical meditation is attending to what God has said, treasuring it in your heart, meditating on who he is. And it's not even silent. Psalm 1 is a, is a beautiful picture. It uses this word that's like the cooing, of a dove, or the growling of a lion, the purring of a cat, that's biblical meditation. It's like this muttering over his word, talking to yourself, God, this is what you said. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You just, you just can mutter over that. This is meditation. You're treasuring it in your heart. God, I don't know what to pray, but you tell me in Romans eight twenty-six that that you're interceding, that the spirit prays for me when I don't even have the words. I can groan and you're there by your spirit. We're treasuring in our heart the realities of his word. Are you attending to what he says? Are you meditating on scripture, muttering it back to him? And then that translates into worship. So one's kind of internal, talking to yourself via God's word, and then the other's external, talking to the world via God's word. Got you great. God, you are good. I trust you. I proclaim along with these herald angels, that sing, glory to the newborn king. Here he is. I'm gonna declare these things, right? We've been nice enough to schedule an opportunity for you to do this every week. Come join us, gather with us, scream your hearts out to the Lord, proclaim his goodness, but also be like the shepherds who go back into their normal life and glorify and praise God. Like, well, I got to tell you about what God did this week, how he showed up. I got to tell you about this this Jesus. Share, externalize, (laughs) meditate, and worship. I I grabbed a picture of a guy pondering. It is really hard to find a picture of someone meditating or talking to themselves. I Googled both of those things and came up with all kinds of crazy pictures. Um, This one was when I was Googling talking to yourself. So I thought that was interesting because it looks like he's just like, um, you know, it looks like the silent meditation. But again, biblical meditation is a little bit more like talking to yourself, muttering God's word back to yourself, like chewing on it, like a dog with a bone. Just kind of like gnawing on it. I'm not going to let this go, Lord. Are you attending to his word? you grasping hold of it. We've got these Bible reading plans. You don't have to use ours. We've put this one together really as a beginner for folks who have never t- tried this before. It's an 80% solution. We're like, read this. You're going to get the stories in order. You're going to get most of Scripture. We've got 24 monthly readings. We've got footnotes for those of you that are OCD and have to read every chapter at the bottom. But for those of you who want the 80% solution, it's there. We've got some articles on, on how to pray, on how to meditate, on how to love God's word, we would love to get you in God's word in the new year to attend to it in a new way. And, and here's the thing, you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to purpose to not attend to the things that all the robots are making their billions of dollars to get you to attend to. Like you're gonna have to purpose to break that tie in order to attend to God's word. Because currently we have an attention market where the world makes money off of your attending, off of your attention, off of your focus. So you're going to have to cut that tie in order to attend to God's Word at all. I love Philippians 4, uh, 6 and 7. It talks about how anxiety and peace are opposites. And it says when you're feeling anxious, don't, don't continue in that anxiousness, but pray. Pray. And when you pray, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as I said, meditate and worship. I think these are two forms of prayer. These are two ways to pray, to talk to God. You're chewing on his word, you're wrestling with his word, and then worshiping, you're declaring his word back to him. These are two ways for us to pray. Not the only ways to pray, but two ways to pray. Don't be anxious. Don't continue to be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then you will know this peace in the midst of the craziness, in the midst of the coincidences that are just making you insane, in the midst of the great fear that's horrifying you, you will know the supernatural peace. And what's really crazy is joy is connected to this. Verses four and five are the joy verses. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is at hand, right? Paul's like grabbing us by the collar and shaking us. Rejoice because God's here. Don't keep worrying, but pray. And that peace will come. Peace and joy are like two sides of of the same coin. They're both an answer to anxiety. Pray. Ask him to be with you. He's there. We need to wrap up. Man, I was going to try to cut time. I didn't do it. Um, One of my favorite Christmas specials is the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Anybody here seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special? A few of you. Okay. The rest of you under 30, go watch it immediately. Um, I should say under 50. Um, Go watch it. It's great. And in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, we've got Charlie Brown, key character from this comic strip, and he's just like depressed, he's got issues, man, he's always sad. To to be honest, when I was a kid, I didn't even even really like Charlie Brown that much because he was so sad all the time. Um, But as an adult, I appreciate him more, and he's like, everything I touch is a disaster. Everything's a mess. Can someone please tell me the true meaning of Christmas? And this kind of like goofy, childish character steps up. He's like, I got it. His name's Linus. If you don't know Linus, he sucks his thumb and carries around a baby blanket. <laughs> and isn't it just like Jesus that Linus would be the one to tell us the true story? Jesus, uh, Linus, steps up with his baby blanket, his swaddling cloth, if you will. He steps up and he tells the Christmas story, this story from Luke chapter 2. And there's this really cool thing that's, that's gone around on the internet, so... I didn't attend to the original special well enough to see it in the cartoon, but there's like a meme that shows you this one scene. When Linus is reading the Christmas story, he says, fear not, he drops his baby blanket. It's so beautiful. Because there's just like layer upon layer here, right? Like three times Lucas told us this is a baby. This is a baby in a manger, right? He's wrapped up in a blanket. And Linus lets go of his blanket in that moment. It's like symbolizing faith in a sense, right? What is faith? Faith is is you and me dropping our baby blanket. Give me you, Jesus. I need you. I'm gonna stop holding onto the blanket of money, of control, of power, of pleasure. I'm gonna let go of my blankets of comfort, of drink, of drug, of sex, of distraction, of respect, whatever it may be for you let go of the blanket, let go, and entrust yourself to the God of the universe who came as a baby wrapped in a blanket. There's this image again and again in the New Testament that says, we are in Christ. Clothe yourself in Christ. Take on Christ. Wear Jesus. Wrap yourself in him. Let his robes of righteousness surround you. Entrust yourself to him this baby who came for us in a manger 2,000 years ago. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've invited us into relationship with you. Thank you that you've ended the hostility, our constant war with you. You've set the terms of peace by sacrificing yourself, by coming to take our place, by living with us, by suffering with us and suffering for us. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to trust you. God, make us the kind of people that share the story. We don't just want it to be scary angels telling the story, Lord. We want to tell the story. We want to share it. We want to shout it. We want to share it. Help us and help us to know your peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.